not lose heart. Those words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, actually verse 16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Why? Because of the Lord's presence. Why? Because the Lord has risen from the dead. We do not lose heart. I often think of those words because these are times that try people's hearts or souls or resolve or faith or confidence or trust. You fill in the blank. There's lots of ways to describe it. But we here on Faith Is do not lose heart. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm so glad you've joined us today. This is the place where we stretch in God's direction. We stretch toward his high calling. We want to be his, and we want to renew our confidence, renew our faith. Remember, faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we, you and I, want to have that kind of confidence in God, absolute confidence in his trustworthiness. And I've been thinking about that idea a lot, and, and that fits with the really the big picture story of what we've been talking about in the story of the Exodus. And it also pops up in all kinds of other places in the Bible. For example, in Psalm 27, verse 13. I was looking at this because I was fascinated by the reference to the goodness of God, and we're going to get to that as we unfold the story that we're looking at today. But he particularly says something interesting in verse 13 of Psalm 27 in the New King James Version. It says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would have lost heart unless I had absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the of the living. You see, we can have confidence in him, and the psalmist wants us to understand that he would have lost heart except for the goodness of God. Another English translation, and I use this one occasionally, not as often, it's a common English Bible, but in Psalm 27, verse 13, it says this, but I have sure faith that I will experience the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. I have sure faith, I have sure confidence in the trustworthiness of God that I will experience the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Well, I hope you will hang on to some of those ideas and follow along with us as we explore some of these things over the next few minutes. As I said, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm a real pastor. Well, kind of as real as you get. And some people would say I'm a little unreal some days. But nonetheless, I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, where we have a wonderful group of people that is determined to follow God faithfully and to hold up the truthfulness of the Bible and to let it guide our lives and help us make the right decisions and Because we trust the Bible and we trust God's revelation to us, we can have confidence in him and we are convinced he is a good God and he is with us. All of those kind of themes you'll hear popping up a little bit as we unfold the program today. But I want to start with this idea of the church. Every now and then I bring up things that I've been thinking about and we take the time here every week to think out loud. And I realize that's a little risky because some of the things I think shouldn't be said out loud. Do you ever have that problem? Well, I'm willing to take the risk with you because I guess we have 
developed a level of trust between ourselves and we can think out loud and we can challenge each other. And, and, and I want to circle back to another look at another, how should I say, conversation about, it's kind of a one-way conversation, thanks for listening, but I want us to talk about the church again. And I bring that up every now and then because, well, the church matters. It, it really does. I, maybe I told you one time years ago, some, some friend of mine and I were talking, and, and I didn't know this person real well, but we were talking about one thing or another, and we were talking about the church. And the church has had its stresses and strains over the years. We all know that. You read a little church history, you can find that out. Live a little church history like some of us have done, you can find that out. And I was talking to this, this person, this man, and, and I heard myself say, and do, you, do you ever have that problem when you're talking to somebody and all of a sudden you hear yourself say something and you didn't quite realize that that was really what you thought? That was really how you felt about something? Well, as I was talking to him, I, I heard myself say, and remember we're talking in the context of the church and its, its situation and all of that. I heard myself say to him, I love the church. I had never said that. I don't, don't say that very often. I don't know why I don't say it very often. It just never occurs to me to say it out loud or say it that way. But it's true. And, and I thought that was quite the striking revelation that God gave me in that moment. That's been, oh, I don't know if it's been quite 10 years ago, maybe, that I first said that. But I want to talk about the church. And I was reminded about this recently when our church had to make some changes to our banking. Every now and then, you know, things change, people change, and we had some personnel changes. And, and it was really a relatively straightforward thing, although banking and their requirements is not quite as straightforward as it used to be. But anyway, we had all the things lined out, all the papers we needed and everything. And we're sitting there in the office at the bank making these changes. And the bank person referred to the church as a not-for-profit or a non-profit. And uh, I, never to be shy about some things, well, sometimes I'm careful to just bite my tongue and not speak up. But in this case, I spoke up and said, well, no, the church isn't a non-profit. It's not a non-profit in the way we usually think of non-profits. And the bank official looked at me kind of funny and said, well, then are you for-profit? <laughs> and I said, no, we're not for profit either. And they would just wanted a way to categorize us. And so, uh, you know, that was the only choice. And that's fine. I said, no, that's it's fine. You can think of us as a nonprofit. But the church is different. We are not the same as other nonprofit organizations in this country. We are distinct. We are different because of the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. The church is unique in the organizations in our country. And we are not that easily described by some people because they don't quite know what to do with the church. But let's at least begin by recognizing that the church is different. It's not for profit, should not ever be for profit. It doesn't mean we don't need enough resources to pay our bills. That's not the same thing. The church is not a nonprofit. We don't have to report our business to anyone. Nonprofits do. You can look up their annual reports on the internet. You can find out a lot about the, a nonprofit group, but churches don't do that. I would resist that forever. 
because we're distinct, we're different, because if we are required to give an account to the government, which is what nonprofits have to do, then that gives the government the opportunity to control us. And because we have religious liberty in this country, the government's not allowed to try to control the church. Well, that says a mouthful, and it means a lot, and, it, and it's important to understand that. The other thing that I, that I often say to people, and maybe I don't say it often enough, but one of the things that makes the church different is that we, the church, the people of God, are the visible presence of Jesus in the world today. Now, we're going to talk about the presence of God as it relates to the Exodus story that we've been talking about, bits and pieces of it, not every incident, but bits and pieces of the Exodus story since, oh, several weeks ago. But the church today has to be understood as the visible presence of Jesus in the world today. Jesus went back to be with the Father. That's what we remember on Ascension Day, on Ascension Sunday. And we, the people of God, we're left here to be his visible presence. That makes us different. It should cause us to be real conscious of who we are and what we do, how we behave, all of those kinds of things. What is a priority for us? Because we are really and truly the visible presence of Jesus in the world today. Another thing about the church is the church never closes. You know, there are business hours. And every now and then somebody will ask me about office hours. And and it's not that I resist that. It's just in my situation, it's a little hard to have too strict of office hours. I have a kind of a pattern every week, but it's subject to change. It's just the way it is. But in terms of being open for business, the church is always open for business because the church is the people of God wherever they are. And so the church never closes. And and that's especially true and was especially true during all this virus stuff. Uh, I said to people, the church doesn't close. We are not driven by that sort of thing. It's it's related to another thing that I was reminding people of is, is that when when other people step back, the church steps up. We don't know what it's like as the people of God to step back. We engage. We are there for people. We never close. We step up, especially in times of crisis. It's important for the church to step up. And that's one of the reasons that we didn't close our churches, because we are the visible presence of Jesus, and Jesus doesn't shrink from something like a virus. He calls us to stretch in his direction. So those are important thoughts about the church. Now, another thing that I that I want to mention about the church, and sometimes this gets lost, and I have been saddened in my life to watch the way church structures work. In other words, they tend to make people think that the local church isn't as important as the general church or the group of churches, the church represented on a national level or international level. And and I'm I've not ever been real comfortable with that. It's not popular to say because the hierarchy doesn't want you to say this or think this or act this way. But we need to think local when it comes to churches. The church is at its best when we think about it as the local group of people, maybe that meets down the street or meets across town. Wherever it meets is not as significant as the fact that it's in our community. We are local. Churches meet in all kinds of places. They sometimes meet in rented places. Sometimes churches share facilities so that one church meets at one time and another church meets at another. That's, that's all well and good, but it's all local. We need to think about the church as local. You need to think about your church. Your church needs you. 
You know, a lot of people think, well, they just show up on Sunday and that's it. Well, that's great. That's an entry level, a beginning, but that's really a bare bones introduction. Your church needs you to engage and to be involved and to get acquainted with people and to and to know what needs to be done and then to offer to help in any way that God has gifted you to help. The church needs you and you need the church. You need that opportunity. Now, people say, I don't need one more thing to do. That's not what I'm talking about. Maybe some of what you're doing now you need to stop so that you can engage with your church and for your church and be a part of the kingdom of God through your church. You need that. Your church needs you because the church can't accomplish its mission without people helping. But you need the church because you need to be a part of that. And I've never been more saddened than when I see people who have always kept the church a little bit at arm's length. And then something happens. Sometimes it's a death in the family. Sometimes it's a serious illness. But something will happen. And suddenly they need the church. And suddenly it becomes really apparent that they have kept the church at arm's length. It's not that the church doesn't care for them or want to respond to them, but it's just different. And I have been saddened when I've seen that happen. See, the church needs you and you need the church. And the church needs you to stand up for the church. A lot of times people people are denigrating the church these days, and, and we should not allow that to happen. We need to stand up for the church, stand by the church, be a part of it, defend the church. All of the things, when people want to put the church down, we ought to be building the church up. When people want to be saying, well, the church is just a marginalized sort of something over there, we ought to be saying, no, it's not. The church is the people of God everywhere in our city or in our town, because wherever the people of God are, that's where the church of God is. We need to stand up for the church. We need to build up the church. We need to encourage people. I wonder how church would be different for all of us if you made it part of your every week effort when you go to church to build up somebody or some people in your church, to be an encouragement to them. Some weeks you're going to show up to church and not feel like much of an encourager. You're going to say, well, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I get that. And the church needs to be there for you, and the church will be there for you. But what would happen if we all Instead of thinking, I'm going to go to church to get something out of it, if we went to give something to the people around us. Every week during our service, I encourage people to turn to someone nearby and extend to them the blessing of the peace of Christ. We live in an anxious world. People are anxious about so many things, worried about this, nervous about that. We live in an anxious age, and we need to bless each other with the peace of Christ. And what if you went to your church every week with the idea of blessing someone with an encouragement, with building them up in some way, a compliment for something they've done, or thank them for something that you know they've been involved in. What if you made an effort to encourage, to build up three people every Sunday when you went to church? Three people, you pick them. Well, you don't need to pick them. You ask the Lord, who are the three that that I could could help this week and ask him to show you. And then you make an effort to go out of your way to have a conversation with them, to do something that will build them up. And while you're at it, 
maybe at a fourth person, I would advocate for pastors. A lot of pastors need more encouragement from their church than they get. I'm not complaining because my church has been very supportive, and I'm, and I'm not at all asking them to do more. But I do know that there are a lot of pastors that struggle. It's not an easy thing. And so include your pastor in that, I will build up my church. I will be an encourager, because the church needs it. And then one more thing. I was privileged recently to attend a pastor summit sponsored by Turning Point Faith. You may have heard of Turning Point USA. Well, the Turning Point Faith Division is a part of Turning Point USA. It's really focused on honoring God and bringing biblical truth to bear on the world around us. It's not at all what some people try to frame it as, 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 as political and pursuing political power. I haven't seen that in Turning Point Faith at all. It's a bunch of pastors getting together to be pastors and to be equipped and to be determined to live out the gospel in the midst of a rather trying trying time for our country. Well, one of the pastors that spoke at the summit that I attended recently talked about, no, excuse me, I don't think it was one of the pastors. It was, an, it was a lay person that spoke. And this person was reflecting on the church a little bit and said, you know, we think about large churches and small churches and and one being better than the other. Every now and then I'll hear people say, all small churches are best, or sometimes people will will make statements and observations like large churches are somehow better, they're more successful. And this person said a couple of interesting things. One of them, things that this person said was, they had noticed that often there is greater conviction in smaller churches. In other words, people are more convinced to follow God in smaller churches. There's greater conviction that I will follow God. I thought that was interesting. Probably true. I don't think that that's necessarily the cause or an effect of the small church. It just tends to be true for whatever reason. But then the person went on to, to talk about it some more and said, you know, we need to think differently about churches. Instead of small versus large, we need to think about weak versus strong. And that got my attention real quick, and I thought, that's exactly right. We need strong churches, and strength is not necessarily equated to size. Can be. bigger you are, the more resources you have, the more capabilities you can have more to offer, and it is a position of strength. But in terms of spiritual conviction and of resolve and genuine Christian strength, we don't see that determined at all by size. And and I I'm glad I I was glad to hear that because I thought that's very insightful. And and who wants to go to a weak church anyway? I don't know of anybody. We want to go to strong churches, so let's be strong. Be strong in the Lord, the Bible admonishes us. And we need to make sure that we do that and make our churches strong. And your church becomes strong when you lend it strength, when you show up when you stand up for it, when you defend the church, when you encourage the people of the church, you make the church strong. Nobody benefits from weak churches. We all benefit from strong churches. So let's be strong. And by the way, it's not about how close your church is to your house. I know a lot of people look for a church that's not very far from their house. Convenience. Okay, I get that. But it's not about that. You need to look for a church that's closest to the Bible the church that will follow the Bible and be faithful to God. Even if you have to drive 45 minutes to go to that church, 
it's worth it. You would drive that far for a job that paid you twice as much money. Well, why would you entrust your spiritual well-being to anything less? So find the church that is closest to the Bible, get involved, support it, strengthen it, be strong in the Lord, and help that church be exactly what God needs it to be in that community. Well, that's just a little bit of thought about the church. And I, I make no apologies for bringing up the church from time to time. I, I really believe one of the best things I can do as we talk together every week is encourage you to be a part of a church. I certainly do not want anything that I do or say to discourage you from going to a church and making that a primary focus of your week. God wants you there. I want you there. Your church needs you. You need your church. We need to make strong churches, and together we can. Every now and then I think people shrink from the church because they think the church is weak. You know why the church is weak? It's because people shrink from it. Engage. Step up. Be strong. Make your church strong. Well, we've been looking at the story that we usually refer to as the Exodus story. I'm not exactly sure where that ends. It kind of begins with the beginning of the book of Exodus when God began to notice that something needed to be done and its people needed to be liberated. We don't quite understand why they were in Egypt as long as they were. But we do know that God delivered a baby named Moses who grew up, fled Egypt because he didn't like what was being done to his people. He saw one of them badly abused, and he killed the Egyptian that was abusing him. So that was found out. He had to run for his life. So he's out tending his flocks one day, and God shows up. I wonder how God's going to show up in your week this week. Well, I hope he does. But anyway, he's out tending his flock, and God showed up to Moses in a way he probably won't show up to any of us. But Moses saw a bush on fire, and it got his attention, of course, because of the fire, but also because the the bush was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. Moses thought, that's curious, and he walks over, and lo and behold, God speaks to him. Long story short, fascinating conversation. God says, I'm sending you to Egypt to get my people out of there. Moses says, not so fast. I don't want to go. Read the story if you think that's an exaggeration. It's not an exaggeration. But God convinces him. You know, God can be very convincing. And I hope he's very convincing to you when he's got something he needs you to do. So Moses agrees, goes to Egypt. Pharaoh has nothing to do with him. Who's this God you're talking to me about? I don't know Yahweh. I'm not going to let the people go. Remember, Moses said to Pharaoh that he should let the people go to worship God. Quintessential. How's that for a word? Evidence of the importance of religious liberty. God wanted his people out of Egypt so they could worship him. Well, that goes through a lot of travail, both for the people and for the Egyptians, because there were a number of plagues that God sent to Egypt to try to convince them that he was God and they were not. Eventually, they become convinced because of Passover. And the key thing about Passover that we must not ever forget or miss is that God gave them specific instructions for preparing a meal, and when they killed the Passover lamb or young goat, they were to sprinkle the blood on the doorposts and the lintel of their house so that God would see that when the death angel passed through Egypt and God would, and this is what's really important, God would stand at that doorway and protect them, not let the angel of death enter that house because every other place in all of Egypt 
the death angel visited and killed the firstborn of that household. People and animals. Stunning. But God, this is the important thing, God saw the blood and he stood guard over their doorways and would not let the angel of death enter there. That's very significant. God was with them. He was with Moses. He said to Moses, you're not going on your own. I sent you. I'm with you. Well, they go through all of those things and finally because of Passover, because of the final plague, the Egyptians send God's people, the Israelites, on their way. They send them with treasures. They give them stuff. And away they go out. And God leads them by a rather circuitous route to the Red Sea incident. And again, we see that God is with them. Their route made it seem like they were lost. And so Pharaoh took courage and said, I'm going to go get them back. So he sent his 600 plus chariots and soldiers out to get the people and take them back to Egypt. And the people are now where God led them. Remember, God led them to this spot. He had a cloud by day and a pillar of fire. The Many English translations call it a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire that led them day and night. So he led them to this specific spot where they became trapped by the advancing Egyptian army and the water that they couldn't cross. They didn't have boats. They couldn't get across. They were trapped. Well, they went into a panic, but God said, hold on, I'm not finished with this. And his visible presence, that cloud and that fire, moved between his people and the Egyptian army. And those people passed across that water on dry ground. God's visible presence was there, remember, undeniably with them. They go across, the Egyptians try to go across, and the waters come back together. Their chariot wheels won't turn, they cannot escape, and they are destroyed. God is with his people. They continue on. Well, the story doesn't end at the Red Sea crossing. They continue on. And it's not very far down the road that the people are upset again. These are really some interesting people, aren't they? They're upset again because they don't have food that they want to have. They don't have appropriate diet. And so they cry out to God, and they're upset, and they're cranky. And, and God sends them more quail than they know what to do with. And so they harvest the quail and he sends them something they had never seen before and they called it manna. It was a wafer-like substance. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was something that they could use for their diet. And he gave it to them every morning. They were to gather what they needed for that day. They didn't need to have any leftovers to take care of the next day. They just consumed it day by day, except the day before the Sabbath when they gathered twice as much because God didn't want them gathering on the Sabbath. And he gave them quail and manna. They continued on. They got to Rephidim. And they needed water. They didn't have water. Now, it's very important. That's a very dry area of the world. And so water is important. You have to have water to sustain life. And they couldn't find water until God gave them water out of a rock. They're at Rephidim. They were pretty grouchy about it, but God gave them water. And they survived. And in that same area right near where Rephidim was. They were near Sinai. And God came down and gave them Ten Commandments. It was the most remarkable thing because now, for the first time, they knew how to get along with a holy God. They knew exactly what God expected. And we do too. And we need to remember it's not about posting the Ten Commandments. It's about obeying the Ten Commandments. So many people get so upset about posting the Ten Commandments. 
I wish they would get so upset about obeying the Ten Commandments. And most of them are pretty straightforward, but I want to mention one. God says, Thou shalt not covet. Don't want what your neighbor has. Do not covet. Hmm. What's going on in our world today? We have seen, in my lifetime, the rise of interest, particularly among young people in this country, in socialism. Socialism, at its heart, is coveting. It's saying, I don't have, and somebody else does have, so I think we should take from them and give to me. Or give to somebody less fortunate. They usually frame it that way. We should take from the rich and give to the poor, the whole Robin Hood scenario. But God says, don't covet what belongs to someone else. It's not yours to want. And yet at the heart of this whole socialist project in this country is this desire to have what I don't have. And it's time for God's people to recognize that. God's solution to people in need is for God's people to give them from their resources help. So you and I, we help people. That's one of the reasons we tie to our churches, so our churches could help. That's the reason we have an annual, a monthly opportunity at our church to give to what we call the Love Cares Fund so we can help people when they need a little help from time to time. But covetousness, as we've seen it so often, is, is this socialist idea, and it is a trap that will destroy us. And God made that plain in the Ten Commandments. Hello, church, wake up. Thou shalt not covet. That means socialism is a trap and an empty suit promising what it can never deliver. Well, we're not quite as far along as we need to be in the Exodus story, but we're far enough along that we need to take a little breather here and take a break. So we're going to pause for a couple of minutes, and I want to encourage you to come back and join us again. I'm Pastor Rick. This is Faith Is. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced. These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code out loud. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. 
Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. Changing the world one person at a time. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Welcome back. We're back at it again on Faith Is, where we stretch in God's direction, where we challenge each other to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because that's what faith is. And we want to follow God's people and learn from their story. And you probably noticed that they had some challenges with confidence in God. You probably also noticed that their circumstances were not always ideal. God led them into some interesting times, but he was teaching them to have confidence in him. I would be pretty sure that your circumstances are not always ideal. But that doesn't mean that God has abandoned you or that you can't have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. See, having that kind of confidence means that that no matter how it seems now, it's going to be okay when God gets finished with things. And we need to develop that kind of confidence in him and not put him to the test foolishly. The other thing that we need to realize is that so many times when we allow our circumstances to drive us, and we've all been guilty of this, if we're going to be honest, we may as well be honest, okay? We've all been guilty of this, that we keep our eyes on certain of our circumstances, and we highlight them, magnify them, instead of keeping them in perspective. A couple of things go bad that we're unhappy about, and we forget all the good things that are going on. And so we're trying to remind ourselves to have confidence in God no matter what. And so we've been following the story of God's people, and we've been unfolding what we call the story of Exodus. I'm not sure where it ends. I know more where it begins, but 
I guess you'd say the story of the Exodus ends when they finally get to the promised land. And we're not anywhere close to that at this point in our story. But we've, we've just finished up. They got out of Egypt, went across the Red Sea on dry land. They were fed with quail and manna. They got water at Rephidim. And they came to Sinai in that region. And God came down on the mountain and gave them the law, Ten Commandments. So they would know how to get along with a holy God. We know how to get along with God. Uh, most of us know it's a question of whether we do it all the time. But anyway, we want to obey the Ten Commandments, especially understanding that God gave them for our well-being and so we could live with Him and each other well. I mentioned that covetousness is a particularly daunting challenge these days because that's at the heart of the socialist ideal that's actually ripping our country apart. And we need to get clear on that, particularly Christians need to get clear The socialism is at heart covetousness and is a trap that will lead us to destruction. So they get the law, they get tired of waiting for Moses. The charitable way to explain that is they thought Moses was dead because he had been gone so long. But really they abandoned God and their faithfulness to God and they, they demanded an idol, a golden calf, which Aaron Moses' assistant provided for them. And they had a festival to the Lord honoring this golden calf that apparently they thought represented the Lord or substituted for it or something. It gets a little messy in trying to figure out exactly what they were up to, but clearly what they had done was a violation of everything God expected of them. They put another God before him. They built a graven image. The commandments God gave them, said, don't do that. Moses comes down from the mountain, sees it, shatters the commandments, which is essentially recognizing that the covenant has been broken. And by shattering that description of the covenant regulations, the requirements of how to get along in a covenant relationship with God, he's signifying that the covenant has been broken because the people have dishonored God. A terrible things result. Well, one of the most trying things about this whole thing is something we don't recognize, but that was deeply significant. It's not as easy to tell the story of this aspect of the golden calf incident, but it's vital that we understand it today. Because what happened there was more than simply broken tablets. God replaced those. It was more than a calf that was ground up and dumped into the drinking water and they were forced to drink it. Maybe not so much because it would taste bad, but because by consuming the water with the ground up calf, they could never recreate it. It was permanently gone. Could not reclaim it at all. It was gone. That was important. God was saying, no more. This has got to be absolutely forbidden. You need to understand that. Well, I think they didn't, and we should. It's more than the loss of life that took place at that point, because a number of people were killed because they dishonored God. Terrible. Terrible judgment. You might say, well, what could be more than the loss of life, the judgment of God on the golden calf? What could be more? Well, what was more was explained in chapter 33 of Exodus. 
and it's something that we sometimes overlook, but I just want to start in by reading, and we'll go partway through here and see where we want to stop in Exodus chapter 33. But we'll start with chapter 33, verse 1, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. The Lord said to Moses, Go leave this place, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, and go to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, or I would consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard these harsh words, they mourned, and no one put on ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do to you. Therefore, the Israelites stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. The horror of all of this is often encapsulated in the death of many, in the destruction of the calf and the dumping of the powdery remains in the drinking water. But the harsh words were this. Comes in verse 3, where it says, But I will not go up among you, or I would consume you on the way, for you are a stiff necked people. In other words, the God who had been with them, with Moses from the burning bush into Egypt, with them during the travail in Egypt when the plagues were harassing the Egyptians and the Egyptians were fighting back and making trouble for God's people. God was with them on Passover night when he protected them, stood at their doorway, wouldn't let the angel of death in. He was with them when, by pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, he led them out from Egypt. He was with them, even leading them to that spot that looked like destruction at the Red Sea. But he was with them because he held off the Egyptian army with that cloud while they, his people, went across the water because he had part of the waters and there was dry ground. They went across to the other side. The Egyptians tried to follow. He was with them because when the Egyptians all got out into the middle of that, then he bogged down their chariots. I think the place got muddy and the water came back and consumed them and there was a great destruction. God showed Pharaoh who was God. He was with his people. He was with his people when they complained about the quail and the manna and he sent quail and manna. He was with them at Rephidim when they cried out, complained they didn't have water, and God sent water from a rock. He was with them. His presence was stunningly displayed at Sinai when he came down and gave them the Ten Commandments. He was with them that whole time, and he was with them while they built that golden calf and ushered in this great judgment that God said, I will not go up among you, lest I consume you. Stunning. They had enjoyed the presence of God, but all of a sudden, no more. God said, I can't go with you. That, we need to understand, is a serious, serious judgment. Well, wasn't the end of the story but it certainly changed things. And the people heard that harsh 
judgment from God and mourned about it, but life went on. It's a serious thing when we abandon God and He abandons us. And we need to take that seriously as an important life lesson. You know, as long as we're faithful, Jesus said, I'm with you always. Jesus promised that He wouldn't leave us or forsake us. Very important connection to make there. But when we leave or forsake Him, that's a different story. That was their problem, too. Verse 7 of Exodus chapter 33, revised, New Revised Standard Version, updated edition. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise and stand, each of them at the entrance of their tents, and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise and bow down, all of them at the entrance of their tent. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then he would return to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the tent. So here God tells them in verse 3 that he won't go up among them. And so in order for God to talk to Moses so that he would know what God wanted him to know, he set this tent up outside the camp. Now God's original design, and later we see it revealed in the tabernacle, what we call the tabernacle, was for God to dwell right in the center of the camp, right among his people. But here it had to be set up outside the camp. It was still possible for the people to see that God was there, but he certainly was not among them like he had been or wanted to be. He was out away from them. And it's a very interesting observation about salvation. We often think about salvation as going to heaven to be with God. And one day God will make a new heaven and a new earth and we'll dwell in that holy city with him forever. Got it, get it, understand that. But it's interesting in the story that God gives us from the Old Testament about salvation, God wants to come and be with his people, to be among them. And there's no evidence in the Bible that God changed his mind about that. He wants to be with us and among us. God's first impulse to salvation in Exodus was to come and be with his people and then to lead them to the land that he had promised them. So he wants to be with us and lead us forward. That's pretty good news, don't you think? And so that's what happened. God would come down and meet Moses there in this tent, usually referred to as the tent of meeting. And the people could see that, and they bowed down. They stood in awe. And notice it mentions Joshua, son of Nun, staying there at the tent, being kind of a caretaker of the tent. Joshua plays a prominent role later in the story, but here he is introduced to us, and we know what's going on. He's right there with Moses, right there when God comes down to the tent of meeting. Verse 12, Moses is at the tent, and he and God are talking. I want you to listen to what goes on in this very interesting exchange. Moses said to the Lord, verse 12, See, you have said to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, 
If I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He said, God's response, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence, this is Moses replying to God, If your presence will not go, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. Notice the importance. We're going to pause right here. Notice the importance that Moses says, We need you. We need you. For how shall it be known, verse 16, that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. They wanted God to be with them. We want and need God to be with us, too. We need to welcome him, not take him for granted, but welcome him and walk with him. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, God replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, God says, God continuing, You cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, See, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will, co- I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So God is granting Moses' request. Moses and God have this conversation, and and Moses wants to see God's glory. It's interesting that, that God says in response to the request, please show me your glory, in verse uh, 18. In verse 19, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. He doesn't say I will make all my glory pass before you. He says all my goodness. That's, I think, interesting. We shouldn't overlook that. He goes on to explain to Moses, you stand over here on this rock and I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I'll cover you up with my hand. The implication is, you know, if you cover something with the palm of your hand, you're protecting it. And so God is saying, Moses, you stand over here in this rock and I will protect you. And I will pass by. You will know I'm passing by. But you can't see my face. You can see my back. Now, a lot has been made of that. And part of it is because it couldn't survive if he had seen God's face. But I think the other thing to realize is that God knows Moses needs to know him, but he can't be known face to face at this point. All God can see is partial, or all God can give to Moses, and all Moses can see is a partial glimpse of God. But he gets to see God, and he gets to see, think about it, he gets to see the goodness of God. Now, all the way through this story, we've seen the people cry out that God hadn't given them something they need. All the way through the story, they've complained about one thing or another. And God has over and over provided them what they needed. 
Well, they needed to get out of Egypt, and God provided the way out. He got them out. God led them out. They needed to know which way to go, and he led them out. Yes, he led them to that Red Sea incident, but he led them there so he could show them what he was about to do. Could it be that sometimes we get in those circumstances and we whine and complain instead of saying to God, well, show me what you're going to do to be with me through this. And he was with them through that. Got them all the way across to the other side. Totally destroyed Egypt. Delivered his people. He was with them. All the way through there, he was with them. And he was showing them his goodness. The quail and the manna was his goodness. Okay, you need more food or different food or whatever. Here, quail and manna. Have at it. Have a feast. I'll provide for you. Get to Rephidim. Water. We need water. God says, I'm good. I'll give you water. By this time, they get to Sinai, the same area as Rephidim, and God comes down and says, I'm so good, I'm going to tell you how to get along with me so that you and I, you the people, me, your God, know how to get along in covenant. Remember, the covenant was being restored and now regulated with the Ten Commandments. You know, sometimes we don't like to think of God as regulating our relationship with Him. Well, let's not be presumptuous. God gets to set the way things work, and it's up to us to cooperate with that, right? We cooperate with His grace, and He gets to tell us, and that's what the the Bible's for. It, It tells us how to get along with the Holy God. It's the regulation of that. And now... They mess up badly with the golden calf and totally violate the covenant. It's broken. It's got to be restored. And God graciously does not destroy the people, but he forgives them. And You know, I think it's time for us to take heart. One of the pastors told a very interesting story at, this, at the conclusion of the pastor's summit. And he had been, when he was in high school, and, and he's well past high school now, but he had been in high school a swimmer. And so he trained vigorously. I guess all athletic training is pretty vigorous, but swimming can take a lot out of you. I don't know a lot about that. Some of us don't know swimming very well because we swim like rocks. But he was an accomplished swimmer. He showed up for practice every time, and he showed up one day for practice. And they always practiced early in the morning before school because that's when they had time. They had to do it before they were expected to be in class. And so the coach announced to them that they were going to be swimming butterfly intervals. Now, I don't really understand what a butterfly stroke is. I know it's a certain stroke in swimming. But I'm told, and as he described it, it's one of the more demanding strokes. And the coach said, we're going to be swimming butterfly intervals, which means they would have a certain distance to swim in a certain period of time. The coach announced the time to them. And to this young man's horror, as he listened to the coach say it, the coach said, The time, and the time was 15 seconds faster than he had ever been able to swim the interval for the butterfly stroke. Well, they started in and they swam, and the coach had given them a number. I I, I want to say 11, but I can't remember if it was a a high number, something along that line. Well, he finally managed to get a couple of them taken care of, but he just couldn't get more. And every time they swam one, they didn't make it. They had to keep going because they had to swim the number under that time or within that time. Well, he was making no progress, and and he knew his dad was going to pick him up, and his dad came to pick him up, and his dad was a captain in the Navy. 
And the coach explained to his dad what was going on and said, well, your young man will be able to leave as soon as he completes these intervals in this time. And the young man saw his father and he thought, his father surely will deliver me from this and say, no, he needs to come with me. But his father said, okay, bye. Let me know if you need anything. The young man was crushed. He knew he was had. He had to finish the, the work. And he did. Took him, he said, until 11.30 that morning. He kept trying and kept trying and pushing and pushing. And finally, he completed all of those intervals in the time the coach had prescribed. And the coach said to him, you've learned two things. Very powerful lesson. I hope we learn them. He said two things. One, you aren't as tired as you think you are. And two, you aren't as weak as you think you are. And you know, we need to learn from that. We are the people of God. When we stretch in God's direction, we aren't as tired as we think we are, and we aren't as weak as we think we are. And God has promised us that He will be with us. And that's the story that comes out of the golden calf that we need to take with us. God is with us. So I say to you, God is with us. Go with God. I'm Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick.